Genesis chapter 3. We'll be beginning today at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is the word of the Lord. Three, two things I want to say. Thank you to all of you who decorated this building last week. There's a bunch of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, how many of you uh, went with us on the Candy Kingdom follow-up last week? Any of you go? Uh, thank you for going. And uh, what a great time uh, we had out there telling sinners that Christ loves them. It was a great thing. I hope you use uh, this season to invite uh, the lonely, the lost, the least, the last, the folks that don't know that God loves them. Please don't hoard it to yourself. We want to offer hope. Come tonight. It'd be great. You know, we won't throw you out, but it'd be wonderful if you brought somebody that needs to hear this story. We do this not to entertain the saints. It's a means to an end. Uh, are you catching any fish? That's what I keep asking myself. I'll make you fishers of men. How's fishing going? Let's be sure we're engaged. <clears throat> I'm going to be doing the month of December on the promise. On the promise. We look at Genesis 3. Let me set it up for you. Everything's going along perfect. We got a perfect man, a perfect woman, a perfect environment, no TV, and uh, no media. Everything's perfect. And uh, the only voices in the garden was Adam and Eve to one another and the voice of God. And all of a sudden, another voice appears in the garden, one neither one had ever heard. And uh, in that plot, the serpent, who obviously was a walking creature up to that time, a creature that didn't scare you, a creature that didn't catch anybody off guard uh, because he just shows up, the curse puts him crawling and biting the dirt, so that wasn't his original stance. Probably walked in there, however that was. And they, they don't say, ooh, I'm scared. None of that. None of that's going on. This is later. And so he sneaks up to Eve, 
and he plants this thought, you ought to go ahead and do what God forbid and increase your knowledge. Increase your knowledge of good and evil. God said, I don't want you to increase your knowledge. They said, no, no. Uh, the serpent has made this object appealing. Now, inside that serpent, we will find out Satan is using the body of a physical creature, using that body. And he's eventually called the dragon, the serpent in Revelation 12. So in this, he gets the woman uh, and he deceives her. Now, she was not deceivable before. She didn't lack IQ. She didn't lack spirituality any more than Adam. She was whole. But she bought this scheme that appealed to her, and she reaches out, but she was not willing to reach out by herself. She used her beautiful influence, her beauty, her perfection, to talk her husband into doing it. Now, I want to say as a man, why were you so gullible? Why didn't you rescue her? But the narrative says, and New Testament confirms, she was thoroughly deceived in the fall. And so Adam, he follows through a sin. So in the context of Genesis 15, God is visiting them with judgment. Verse 14, he judges the animal, the serpent. You're going to have to crawl and eat dirt from now on. You're going to be a dirt crawler. In verse 15 is the first gospel, the first promise in all of Scripture. While they're being uh, notified, they're going to be kicked out of Eden. They're going to be in exile from God. And he's going to tell them other limitations. In the middle of this, he says, I'm going to put enmity, this is interesting, between you and the woman, talking about the serpent, Satan, that instead of Satan winning an ally in the woman, there would be enmity between her and the serpent. And between your offspring, it's really translated seed, but it stands for offspring, uh, your heritage, and between your offspring and hers. Eve is going to give birth to a posterity that will be at odds with you, Satan, for you're going to give birth to a posterity. And over here, there will be a godly line of people that will believe God, and in this line, eventually, the specific descendant, the Christ, will come and he's going to crush your head, Satan, serpent Satan. But in doing so, his own heel is going to be bruised. It's going to cost him something to judge Satan. And so he sets this up, that this is going to take place, that this animosity, and it's interesting, it, the original, we're talking about the seed. Neither Satan has a seed nor the woman. That comes from the man. Satan, the spirit being, has no seed. But in your heirs to come, Satan will give birth to people that he says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. 
So there's a whole race of people in antagonism to God and in antagonism towards the Christ and those who are the descendants of the children of faith. Then he goes on to say in this exile, I'm going to do something in your husband-wife, male-female relationships. Verse 16, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. I had a guy come in the early days of this church, and he had a new method that said women are not to be suffering pain in childbearing. That was a part of the old fall, and that women in Christ should not have this. I told him he had come too late for my wife and that he was full of smoke. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It would be this way. The word desire is only used two other places in Scripture. Song of Solomon of sexual desire. You shall have a passionate desire for your husband. But the closest reference to it is Genesis 4. And in Genesis 4, he says to Cain, Watch out, for sin is at the door, and its desire is for you. The idea there is it desires to dominate you. Domination. So here we see the battle between the sexes. Eve you're going to have strong desire towards your husband, but it will once again have the kind of authority you had at the beginning that seemed to be total equality. You're going to seek to dominate him. And instead, he shall rule over you, and the idea is harshly rule. Harshly rule. So think of this plight from the beginning. Adam and Eve are put outside the garden. Cherubim guard access to the tree of life. And here they're put out there. It says Adam lives to be 930 years of age. 930 years of age. Now, I want you to think of what this was like. Think if you were a woman. For let's say at least 800 years. If she lived as long as Adam. See, Adam was probably alive when Noah was building the ark. Guess what Eve heard for over 900 years? The reason we're in this mess is because of you. <laughs> How would you like that? Every time, you know what? We had a nice home to live in before you got to talking to me and sprayed on that midnight in Eden perfume, and I did whatever you wanted. It's your fault. And imagine her kids growing up. What after the killing of Abel and Cain, then Seth? Can you imagine every year if they even celebrated paradise, it would be rehearsed, and she was reminded forever, we're in this mess because of you. And men have never forgiven her. Nope, nope. The only place women are valued is usually where Christ has brought his message. 
Go east if you want from Jerusalem. Go where the gospel has not gone. She's sold. She's pimped. She's good for sex. She's good to have babies. She's good to do physical work. But no say, beat up, abused, hated. Women are a hated species of the race. You understand that? You women will never be treated like God intends until somebody softens the curse, and that only comes in Christ, where he tells a man, cherish this woman, nourish this woman. And by the way, if anybody's to sacrifice himself in the marriage, I want you men, you do the sacrificing. Not blaming, sacrifice. Every woman on the globe ought to embrace Jesus to get their dignity and worth back. He does more for women than any woman has ever done. He dignified, but she's blamed. She's blamed. But just think, 900 years she's going along. How will we ever get paradise back? How will we ever reverse the mess that I helped create? Adam reminds me every anniversary, you're to blame. You're to blame. Every time a baby screams, I'm reminded when I could have had a baby without any childbearing pain. I remember how it used to be. Now I'm getting old. My energy's subsiding. Children are crying. Boys are being buried. It's nothing like what it started out to be. What's going to get me through the centuries? A promise. A promise. Genesis 3.15. I am going to bring a descendant of yours that will rescue you from everything you unleashed. I'm going to bring someone in the future. Now, let's follow the promise that sometimes becomes called the seed. Okay, let's watch this now. Watch the Bible. Here, they're exiled. Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. Chapter 5, we finally have another godly son named Seth. By five chapters of the Bible, in chapter 6, God says, I'm sick of the human race. I repent that I ever made man and woman. I'm going to kill them all. Could you imagine? We're only five chapters. San Francisco's never started. New York hasn't started. Paris hasn't started. London. Just five chapters of human history, and God says, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Everything they think about is evil. Every thought and intent of their heart, what will I do? I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to leave eight people on the face of the earth because Noah found favor in the sight of God. Genesis 6, 6 through 9, the flood. Everything's devastated. We start all over again after that. And they come out. And what do they do? The nations are enumerated, chapter 10. Chapter 11, uh, God has told them they should scatter. What do they do? They gather. And they gather to build the Tower of Babel. They're going to build a ziggurat to heaven. 
We're going to get to heaven on our own. What does God do? He confuses the languages, and we haven't been understanding each other since. We've been talking, but nobody understands us. Communication, communication. We hear it in this church. You don't communicate enough. You don't communicate. Well, you and the husband, you're communicating. You still don't understand each other. We're in a mess when it comes to communication. I thought you said what I thought you meant. I heard you say, what's, what's your problem? We're both speaking English. No, no, you said a lot more than your vocabulary. I read your body. Well, come on. We're in a mess. What does God do? The promise has died. It seemed eight people on the face of the earth. Chapter 12. God looks up a man down in the city of Ur will become Babylon. And according to Joshua, he was a moon worshiper. And I imagine one day he's worshiping this moon god. And all of a sudden a voice speaks to him, Abram, Abram, get up, get your belongings, and go to a land that I will show you. And I'm going to give you a land I'm going to give you a great name, and I want to give you a descendant that will bless the nations. I'm going to give you the promise. It's going to be tied up in your loins and your offspring. So we trace that out. Pretty soon, it's not just Abram. Pretty soon, you've got Isaac. Then it's passed down to Jacob. Then Genesis 49, it's passed down to Judah. And then 2 Samuel 7, it's passed down to David. David, you shall have an heir that shall sit on your throne forever. The promise is in the line. Now, I want you to note something. There's two arch enemies of Satan. The woman because he knows that through her, his demise has been pronounced, and to the nation of Israel. People insanely hate Israel. The whole Arab world has said hundreds of times, thousands of times, if we ever get the advantage, we will drive every Jew into the Mediterranean because we hate them. We can't negotiate with them. We hate them. Why? Satan has put a divine anti-Semitic hate in the Gentile world because the Messiah is going to come through that nation. Let's hate the woman because it's going to be a child without a human sperm. I'm going to use a woman. I'm not going to use you, Adam. The men didn't solve the problem. I'm going to take the woman the one that's been blamed and blamed and blamed, I'm going to use you, woman, to bring the seed, the promise that shall rescue the whole race from the curse. And then I'm going to do it through you, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. And when he comes to Mary, he said, I'm going to give you a child, Mary, and this child shall sit on the throne of David forever, the promise. 
Well, you read in Luke 1, the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. A young maiden, a young virgin, she shall bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And you read in Luke 1, when God comes to Mary and says, I'm going to do this thing in you. She said, Lord, maybe you don't know anatomy. I'm a virgin. Virgins don't have babies. God told her, said, with me, Mary, nothing's impossible. And he said, then the power of the Most High overshadowed her and came on her body, and this is what happened. She had a human ovum. She had, she's going to supply the humanity part of Jesus, and she's going to supply the physical connection back to David. Joseph, the adoptive father, he has the legal right. He goes back to Solomon too. So Mary's related to Solomon and David, but she's the physical connection. And you've got over here Joseph. You get the legal right to the throne through my side. And what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He comes down on this girl that's probably 14. And he provides the male counterpart of a pregnancy. This thing which is conceived of you, Mary, is from the Holy Spirit. He's going to manipulate the ovum so as to create a real pregnancy, and the baby is going to really grow in your uterus. The baby's going to really kick you. The baby is going to have real diapers. The baby's going to nurse your breast, and the baby on your breast will be the Son of God. The infinite will become an infant. The eternal above it all will stoop all the way to Bethlehem. So you're going to give birth to the promise. You're the one that bears this promised seed that's a brain the defeat. Well, when they little baby's growing up, and they want to go to the temple and acknowledge God's blessing for every child that opened the womb the first time for a child, you were to go to the temple, make a sacrifice. They were so poor, they, they only had turtle doves. And when they went there to the temple in chapter 2 of Luke, Simeon, an old man that had been ministering at the temple for years, had been shown by the Holy Spirit, you will not die until the promise shows up. You will not die until God's Messiah you get to see. And so they bring the baby boy. It's just another day around there. He's, he's going through these uh, ceremonies all day, and all of a sudden Mary and Joseph show up and said, here, we want to bless God and, and dedicate our boy to God. Here he is. And when he saw the baby, he saw more than a baby. He saw the promise. He said, I see the consolation of Israel. I see the Messiah. And there are so many Christmas plays we've done here. We hold this baby up. I almost could see Randy holding the baby up. He said, hey, I can now depart in peace. I can now die. God's kept his word to me. I saw the promise. I lived long enough to see the promise of Genesis 3.15 show up. 
Well, he did. And they began to praise God and said, He's come for a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And they says, Mary, beware. This baby's going to cause you much pain. Much pain. Prophesize over her. Well, the pain that he promised was fulfilled at the cross. And Isaiah described it as the place where the heel of the seed was bruised. And Isaiah said, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. Isaiah 53.10 said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for sin. Guess what? The seed of the woman finally came to do the devil his due, but it cost him his life. The bruising of him brought death. The thing Satan hadn't counted on is that he could come back from the dead and finish up on the devil. So the heel has been bruised. But the head of the serpent is to be utterly crushed, and it shall happen. We continue, and this bruised heel, I think it's an interesting verse, maybe one of the strangest Christmas verses you'd ever want to see, is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, listen to what he says. A, a passage that has been interpreted so many ways that I thought you'd get my view. Okay, you might as well get the correct view of it. I read enough literature on this. Um, he, he's addressing how we ought to behave in the church. And he's going to tell men how to behave and tell women how to behave. And I think something you need to keep in mind is eternal principles and temporal, temporal manifestations. Whatever we do in the temporal sphere, does it reflect the eternal principle? Okay, let's look at it. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, let me ask you men, how many of you men stand and pray with your hands uplifted in this service? How many of you did that today? Okay, there's one. Anybody else? Well, you're in disobedience. I asked one guy today, why didn't you do that? He said, remember the verse said they have to be holy. That's what he said. I don't think mine are holy enough to lift up. Is that an indictment? So in this church, we only have one man that's holy. One man said he raised his hands to pray. Why didn't you do that today? Could you be holy and not lift up your hands? Uh, listen. Can you be holy and not lift up your hands? So what is the eternal principle? Be holy. Be right with God. What was the temporal expression, especially Jewish synagogue? They raised their hand like that. It's very cultural, very different. We're used to not, 
Why didn't you women wear a veil today? 1 Corinthians 11. Don't tell me I cited the passage. We used to wear the covering. My wife wore a hat every Sunday. I nearly lost the Ross family. So we're not coming if you've got to wear a hat. Anybody remember those good old days? Did you wear a hat? Look at there. We don't make fun of people that do. Why don't we now? There's an eternal principle. The woman is to be in submission to the man. I believe that until I went to Dallas and studied the role of women and found out women wearing a hat today doesn't manifest submission. It just means they're in style. <laughs> but those who wear it for that reason, that's wonderful. I mean, I know a lot of conservative, but they don't do it at John MacArthur's. They don't do it at Chuck Swindoll's. They don't do it at David Jeremiah's. None of them do it. Why don't they do it? They don't think it's for today. That's all. They don't think it's for today. Now, well, look what you're going to tell this woman here. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Now, that's highly, what is that? I mean, if you dress like the mamas and the papas, is that respectable? We used to have gals come to our church that unless you had a moo-moo, they thought you weren't, you were too worldly. And, and, and they used to tell me, you're wrong because you wear a suit. I said, well, you're wrong because you look like Hilo Hattie. <laughs> Watch out. You're going to talk about my dress. Lots, lots of stuff. I grew up with people. You talk about dress codes. Our women couldn't wear ring, jewelry, makeup. Uh, but they made it up in their hairdo. The hair was fancy. But some of those faces were hard on you. <laughs> I mean, they, it was just plain, you know, long dresses, all the dress codes. We always picked on the women. Always, men love to tell the women how to dress. But look at the principle. I want them to do this respectable. Modesty with self-control, not with braided hair. Let me ask you this. Could you come to church with braided hair and not be in sin? Thank you. What's he saying? The courtesans of the day, it was common for the prostitutes of Asia Minor to have fancy hairdos, put gold in it. That eliminate most of you. You're not having that problem. I didn't see much gold in the hair. Don't look like the courtesans. Don't dress as to seduce. Draw, dress modestly. Dress so as not to draw attention to your body, even to your beauty. He's not saying be ugly, but don't draw undue attention. And so he's telling them, and, but some have taken that literally. You can't braid your hair. You can't wear jewelry. Not saying that at all. Let not that be the emphasis. Modesty, God-fearing, be a woman who's godly and a woman who's doing good works. Wonderful. Principle, temporal expression. Then he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And this, by the way, is primarily in the church. If you can get her to do this at home, help yourself. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I wonder why. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Here we go, the eternal principle. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet will she be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what is he saying? In the gathered assembly, I don't want an authoritative woman teacher uh, doing the Bible studies to the whole assembly. Be like us. Uh, we don't mind Susie teaching women, but God help us. She's not teaching in here. She teaches there. And that we see nothing unbiblical about that. But let's watch out. I, this verse has been abused a lot. It goes this way. Let me ask you this question. I think this is the thing that women in conservative church that we live with. Remember, you are constitutionally and inherently more gullible than your husband. Or any male. You are just constitutionally a gullible person because you were deceived in the fall. So be quiet and enjoy your role in the body of Christ. Dummy, deceived one, shut up. You talk too much in the garden and we're in this mess. Huh? Or you throw it all out and you let them take over. What's the balance? Let me ask you some questions. I wrestle with this a little bit. Are men gullible? Hmm. Amen's increased there. Are they deceivable? And if this woman is so marred by the fall that she's gullible, don't let her teach anyone, women or children. She might, well, it's like we're saying, she can't be teaching men because she was deceived. Well, she ought not to be teaching her kids either because she can't teach anything. She's damaged goods. She's a dummy. She can't talk spiritual truth because the fall has permanently left her a gullible, deceivable person, while us men have retained our great discernment. <laughs> insane, insane. It's why many are not attracted to conservative churches. We don't know what to do with them, but tell them to be quiet. God's got a bigger plan for you, woman, than just being quiet. I'm telling you, I want to throw up because I raised three daughters that can outdo most men when it comes to brain power. And their husbands admit it too. I do too. No, I'm saying your, your deportment in the corporate meeting is to listen, to learn in a sweet spirit. And I hope you men will do the same. But the ones that do the authority, authoritative teaching in the gathered church is men, preferably of elder quality. Amen? I do not permit, by the way, can a woman say anything in church? 
I heard the yes. Do you know why? Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 11? Has anyone? Paul said, women are praying and prophesying at Corinth. And it's okay as long as they have a way to show that they're in submission to their husband. And for them, it was a covering. I don't know what we do to uh, reflect that today, but a woman stands up today. I guess she could just bow to the husband three times and I'm in submission to him. <laughs> However you do that. We sure don't do it with coverings. We don't do it by anything we wear. Women can't wear anything to show they're in submission today. Nothing that I know of. But they prayed, they prophesied. Mm, but you got a problem. You got 1 Corinthians 14, 34. I command women to be absolutely quiet. Now, both can't be true. Both cannot be true. She can't pray and prophesy in 11 and not be able to say anything in 14. So the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. In chapter 14, he said, when the prophets are being judged by what they prophesied, only the men are to judge it. You women, keep totally quiet. Ask your husband when you get home. I don't allow you to judge the prophecies in the church. That's what he told them. Over here, they could pray, they could prophesy. And that wasn't in their garage. It was at church. But he tells this woman, you've been given, you've been given limitations ever since the fall. Men have abused you, hated you, used you. They don't know what to do with you. They like you for sex, but they don't know what to do after that. You can have their babies. You can do this, be a dummy, be treated as an inferior product. But when the man wants sex, he'll look you up. Otherwise, you have no utilitarian worthy function. I tell you, that is anathema. It is a part of the curse. In Christ, the woman has a gift, has the Holy Spirit. She has something to overcome being deceived, just like the man has something to overcome his stupid, gullible, ignorant. We were all ignorant of the gospel. I was blinded to the gospel. Is the veil thicker for men or for women? Equal thickness. It takes the Spirit of God to make man or woman see Christ. It takes the Spirit. I'll tell you, I taught Timothy around here for about 16 years. And along the line there, I started, the women uh, wanted me to teach women of the Word. And so I, I started that. And, and I don't mean to slam anybody, but I want to tell you, the best papers I got were written by women. I taught the men. I taught the women. Same curriculum, same assignments. I thought, how does Miss Gullible write such a good paper? Maybe the Spirit of God's teaching her. Maybe the Holy Spirit's in there. And why are some of you men so dumb about it? Why don't you know your Bible? Why don't you love His Word? Now, this isn't a beat-up, but this is the promise. He's gave this woman a promise. And he says, says this, you will be saved. 
And the childbearing, I think, is a terrible translation. It goes this way in the Greek. It'd be better this way. You shall be saved through the, the definite article is in the Greek. You shall be saved through the childbearing. What's that childbearing? The child, Christ. And notice how it says, you shall be saved through the Christ child. Then it says, if they continue in faith and love, they're not saved by having babies. Some people have taken this verse, this is a promise to Christian women that God will spare you in the midst of childbirth. No, many a Christian woman has died having a baby. Many. There's no, not, this is not a promise of exemption. No, the salvation is in the child that would be born in Bethlehem that was born, and he's telling this woman who's been blamed for the fall, been abused by men, says, by the way, your salvation's in the child. There was a painting that came out of Mississippi, uh, and it was a picture. It showed Eve stretching out from the garden, and she's stretching, and it sees her hands reaching to Mary, and finally her head is laying on the swollen stomach of this Jewish virgin girl. And Eve is saying, the promise has been kept. The promise has come that I've been longing for all these years. Christmas is the arrival of the promise. The promise has been kept. And the promise, as you see the rest of your notes, is that Satan will be utterly crushed under the foot of Christ and ultimately cast into the lake of fire. Now, I close. Hear me, hear me. I am amazed that God wants to use the people who created the mess to bring the one who delivers. I want to use you, Eve, to bring the deliverer, the promised one, and that principle goes this way. Hear me. Anybody in this place ever sin? Oh, please say amen. Raise your hand. Stand up. I'm going to cuss if you don't. This place is full of sinners. And who does God expect to bring the promise to other sinners by? Who? Us. Hey, I've sinned against God. Yeah, so did Adam and Eve. But did God say, you're wiped out? I'm going to kill you like at the flood. Instead, said Adam, I'll let you live 930 years. And Eve, you're going to live there. And someday... Down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David, and then David's house, the exile of the nations. They're taken into Babylon. They're taken Medo-Persia. They're scattered. And according to Isaiah 11, the Davidic tree is cut to the ground. And you say, David is no more. There's no Davidic king in Israel today. No Davidic king. But according to Isaiah, he said, I saw a sapling grow up out of the root. And it grew, and it grew. And guess who that sapling is? It's Jesus. 
and he goes all the way back to the root. I am the son of David that was set on a throne forever. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, God has saved you and spared you the eternal consequences of your rebellion that he might incarnate his message of hope to this world. When are you going to let him use your body? Eve, I'm going to use your body. Mary, I'm going to use your body. I'm going to bring God. It almost seems a little gross that there was an embryo and there was a placenta. I was there. I never forget a doctor when our second was being born. Dr. Ryan had nine children, good old Roman Catholic. And he let me come in when the delivery's going on at the Richmond Hospital. He said, would you like to see a placenta? Sure, do it. Carolyn said, I wish you guys would quit talking. You're sewing her up, nicked her. He just brings up, he holds up the placenta. I said, see this? And Carolyn's not interested at all. Did you know Jesus occupied a woman's womb, grew, that God the Son nursed the breast of a young Jewish girl? God said, I'm going to use you, Eve, use you, Mary, use you, women, to bring the deliverer for men and women, Christ, the Son of God. You are my vehicle. And God is saying to you and I, I'd like to bring hope at this season if I can convey it through you. You who caused my shame, you who caused my death, you sinners, you sinners, I'd like to convey the good news and the promise to the people who brought the curse, us, us. I have to say this. I thank God for what he's done for women in Jesus Christ. I thank God he's got a place for you in the church, and it's not just to be quiet. We need you with our children, with other women. How did he say in Titus to teach younger women? Well, don't teach if you're still deceived. I don't want you teaching anyone. The spirit and regeneration has done something that says, I can use you. I'll gift you. You might be gifted with the gift of teaching. Use it. Use it. Don't worry about where you can't use it. Use it every place you can. All us sons of Adam rejoice at this time of the year. The promise has been kept. And we will continue looking at it. Our Father, I thank you that even through those who caused your shame and brought our ruin, you didn't just burn them up in judgment right then, turn them into ashes. You gave a promise, the first gospel message. Eve, your seed shall crush the head of the serpent devil that deceived you and has cost you paradise, and you'll be reminded forever that you were to blame. But I will bear your shame. I will remove the blame. I will justify you in my son. Oh, Father, 
You rescued all of us from meaninglessness, from rebellion, from the blame of our sin, to forgiveness, adoption, and usefulness. We bless your name forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you.